Welcome to the Doggy Dan Podcast Show, helping you unleash the greatness within your dog. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to the Doggy Dan Podcast Show. Today I am with Carl Safina, who is an extraordinary man. Um, he's an ecologist. He's an award-winning author. He's written so many books on all sorts of things regarding human relationships with the natural world um, and with an incredible focus on how we can make it better. So, um, you know, he, he's appeared on um, TED, written articles for CNN, the New York Times, um, covering all sorts of topics on environmental stuff, humanity, sustainable food. Um, and he knows an awful lot more than most of us um, about most animals and coral reefs and forests. Um, so whether it's about whales or sea turtles or wolves, Carl's knowledge is phenomenal. I love it. And um, today we are going to be hopefully focusing more on dogs or as much on dogs as we possibly can. But of course, we'll be talking about all sorts of other animals as well. And I know you're going to absolutely love it. So Carl, welcome. And thank you for uh, appearing on this podcast show with us. Oh, well, I'm so honored. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, great. So let's get straight into it. I'm sure, as always, some people will be your biggest fans listening to this, but some people probably have never heard of you before. So are you okay just to give us a little bit of an insight as to, in your own words, what you do and who you are and what you love sort of stuff? I'm uh, I'm an ecologist. That's a person who is interested in the relationship among living things and between the living world and the non-living world, non-living world being like rocks and water and the atmosphere and things like that and how how all of those things affect life, how life fits into that and how, uh, how living things interact with one another. So in, in my case, I've always really, really been interested in animals and what, what do they do and why do they do it? And, um, that, of course, has led me into a lot of different directions. It's a huge area, and um, I'm very interested, therefore, in the all the problems we have with the human relationship with the living world, conservation, pollution, the environment. And, uh, and I'm also just very interested in... Um, uh, you know, the more innocent things like uh, what's going on with my dogs. So it, it really r runs the gamut. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Um, we were just chatting before we came on here and um, you were saying you've got three dogs. I've got three dogs myself. And um, something that's always fascinated me is the personality of my dogs. I mean, I I've worked with thousands of dogs over the years and I noticed this these personalities and some, I sometimes wonder how how varied they are, and and I often I, I often wonder are they? Are, do you think the? I guess this is the question. Are, do you feel the the personalities of the animals is as varied as the personality of humans? Do you kind of experience that with with maybe dogs? And what's yeah, your, what's your take on uh, I think. I, well, let me put it this way. Dogs certainly have an enormous range of personalities, mm, mm. and personalities have been detected in all of the animals that people have looked for it. So wow. yep. what do we mean by the word personality? What I mean is that 
individuals react differently to the same situation. Some some are bold, some are um, skittish, um, some are curious, and and that varies. And that the variation is what I mean when I use the word personality. And that, as I say, you know, that has been detected in all the animals. It's it's been looked for. Um, I think I think dogs have it to an exceptional degree, but I, 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 I'm guessing that the only reason that that seems obvious to us is that we are very familiar with dogs. I think if, if we were to be as familiarized with elephants, like, like a, a, a few people are who have watched elephants every day professionally for many years, they talk about elephant personalities. I'm, I'm sure the same is true. Well, I know the same is true about Things like wolves. Wolves are dogs. I had a fascinating experience with um, my chickens, which, um, yeah, of the 17 chickens that I've got, one of them, Crossbeak, the really, really strong, powerful one, connected very deeply with my dear dog, my beloved dog called Jack. Mm-hmm. And um, like I say, the, the, the connection was so strong, she'd jump on his back, go underneath his belly. And um, unfortunately, she got this disease, which um, she ended up where she, she passed away. And it was, she meant so much to me because she was such a strong character um, that I actually, um, I actually took her to the vets and we put her down at the vets. Um, and then we brought her home. And we, my wife and I actually decided we were going to bury her, which might sound a bit, yeah, well, I guess it's not strange, but the place we buried her was quite special. It was close to the house and we had a little bit of a, almost a, a calm ceremony just to say goodbye to Crossbeak because she was so special to us. She taught us so much about our chickens, that all our chickens were all different. And um, and now Jack, our dog, is a very strong character, and he seems to always be focused when there's death, mm-hmm. when, when somebody's ill or dying or passed away. Even if the person's not present, he seems to pick up on the energy. And um, when we buried our dear chicken called crossbeak what I, what jack did was phenomenal he he lay down right next to where we buried her and he stayed there for 3 or 4 hours and didn't move and he was almost in a meditative processing kind of mournful state mm-hmm. is the only way i can put it mm-hmm. and it's not the first time he's done it around um an animal that's died and i i actually captured it on video and made a blog post which i'll share um, on this post so that people can find it. But, uh, you know, we hear about the elephants who kind of mourn their species and are aware of it. And I wonder whether you've you've found other examples of animals who mourn um, the passing of another animal or being. Well, sure. Um, and I have a very similar story to that, actually. Well, but um, before I get to the similar story, yes. just yeah. directly to your question about other animals who mourn, we had... Uh, one pair of ducks among our chickens for a while. And one day, both of the ducks got very sick for some reason. I'm not sure what they contracted. And the drake died and the other one got better. And um, that one that got better just uh, looked everywhere for the drake and was uh, for days just calling and calling and calling 
And yeah. then, you know, like, like humans, after a while, you, you have to stop mourning and get on with just living. So she, yeah. she started just being with the chickens after that. But it was very clear that he was on yeah. her mind and she was looking and looking and looking. The similar story I had was that we had two, uh, two parrots that we, well, we were given these two parrots and, um, yeah. They, they were um, small. One was a conure and the other is uh, what's sometimes called a, a monk or a Quaker parakeet or parrot. And um, the two different species, the, the, the green cheek conure had a, a ton of personality, um, always wanting to do things, always curious, always, uh, um, always uh, wanting to be around us and uh, explore things. And we don't like having birds with clipped wings at all, but we were... Uh, we were always fearful of her getting out of the house because a lot of times parrots, you know, they don't get to grow up in a place and they may just uh, fly and get lost. And that seems to yes. happen a lot. So I was afraid to take the chance. Uh, and this parrot figured out that uh, she could actually get out if she hitched a ride on the back of one of our dogs. And she did that a couple of times. So oh, I, I, I don't think she was inclined to fly away but you know occasionally the dog would would push the door open and come out and there the parrot would be on his back and we would we'd put her in the house when she died um we we also buried her very close to our house and one of the dogs the the retriever mix um seemed very distressed at all of this uh, seemed to want to know what is wrong with rosebud and then when we when we put her in the ground and we we covered her with dirt, that that did not seem like a good idea to our our dog whose name is Chula. Uh, uh-huh. She seemed to want to try to dig her out, and uh, we we put a big stone on the grave. And Chula was uh, was standing there, was sitting there, was lying there for a little while, and we we called her away. I don't I don't know if she would have stayed as long, but. Um, she, she clearly, she clearly knew that, uh, something was out of order about this. And, um, I don't know what their, I don't know what their concept of dead really is, but as I, as I say, uh, you know, predatory animals like wolves and dogs, they, they have to have a professionally operative concept of death because they kill things for a living. And they they have to know the difference between, um, uh, you know, attacking the elk and holding it by the throat, and then when it's okay to release it and consider yes. it food, or or yes. a dog who who catches a squirrel and and shakes it to death, uh, they they know at some point that it's time to stop shaking. So they have yeah. they have an operative concept of death at at least when they're hunting and and I don't know cuz we don't have a lot of experience watching them around death or we usually don't let them see the the body of another dog of ours that has died or that we've had to um euthanize at the end of life so I don't really know I think they I think they don't get much of an education about that but intuitively mm. they seem to know that something is going on they seem to feel distressed around death Interesting you say that, Carl. I um, I ha- I was blessed with a a dog who was the absolute matriarch in the pack. Her name was Peanut, like <laughs> peanut butter, and um, she was a majestic being who taught me so much about love, 
about being. And um, when she passed away, I was very aware that I had three dogs who loved her. And Jack, I knew as well in particular, was a very powerful kind of judge, the king. He knew life and death. He was all about that crossing over. And I knew it was going to mean something to him. So when Peanut passed away um, of old age, old age, 13 and a half, she just passed away. She, she'd been lying in the same spot in the house for about two days without moving. Mm-hmm. Just a heartbeat, just, you know. And then a number of times I looked at her and thought, is she dead? Has she passed away? And then I realized her eyes were just still moving. She was still looking at me. Uh-huh. Um, and, and before she passed away, I, I thought, I want to make sure I capture anything phenomenal that happens on camera. So I actually set my camera up filming the area and where, where she was. And, um, and then she passed away. And I, I brought the other three dogs because I wanted to make sure, like you say, that they knew she'd passed away. And, um, one of the most phenomenal things I've ever seen was I, I, I've got it on video. So I'll, again, I'll link to the blog and the video so you can watch it. But the two dogs, two of the dogs come running in the house like they always do. I mean, normally three dogs would just come charge again and jump on their beds or they'd come and say hello. And two of the dogs come running in and they see peanut. And without a doubt in my mind, one of the little ones called Inca Inca was kind of looked at Peanut as being her absolute mummy, even though they weren't biologically connected. It was that was her mummy. Yeah. And Inca looked at me, looked at Peanut. Immediately, my take on it was she immediately went, "She's gone. She's passed." And she looked at me, and she went into a down dog stretch, kind of, "Oh gosh!" Almost there was almost the kind of, "What do we do now?" And Moses, who's the little general who tries hard and likes the action and do stuff, he was kind of a bit confused. He, the two dogs stood there looking at each other, kind of wagging their tails, kind of a bit excited, a bit stressed, a bit. Uh-huh. And I thought they're dealing with the fact that Peanut's gone. It's yeah. whatever their fear. I couldn't read it exactly. And then I looked, and at the far end of the of the house, through the kitchen, through the dining room, Jack was absolutely stood on the doorstep, but not setting foot in the house. And I looked at him and I thought, come on in. I called him. Now, I've never seen him do this in um, almost, a, you know, six, seven years. And I called him in and I walked over to him and I said, come on, Jack, come and say goodbye. Peanuts over here. And he looked at me and he absolutely refused to set foot in the house. I even got a treat and I said, Jack, come on in. Come and say goodbye. And he looked at me and he went, no. There is no way I'm going to set foot in that house. Wow. And I looked, and it, it it's hard to explain until you're there, but there was no screaming when she died. There's no shouting. There's no tears. I mean, there were tears, but there's nothing kind of that hadn't been going on for two days previously. Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, and there was no way he visually could see. And it was his way of dealing with it was to actually go and lie in the back of my car, which he's never, ever done in a seven-year period. Yeah, mm-hmm. And he's never done since, but that is the exact spot that when I only had one dog, Peanut, that's where she used to lie. And he lies there for four hours again, almost processing the fact that Peanut has passed away. Yeah. And um, wow. it it was the most phenomenal thing. And um, he's never lay in the back of the car there. He always jumps in the back of the boot with the other dogs. But um, 
Well, there's a writer yeah. named Barbara J. King, and she's written about grief in non-human okay. animals. And uh, she has a what I think is a very helpful definition of, yeah. of grief. It's it's um it's more of a symptomatic diagnosis, and it's that uh, grief is the uh, change of behavior that results when one animal uh, that uh, that has been known has died. So, uh, yes. what you're describing is what she yes. diagnoses as grief, and she says yes. that um, we we simply miss them very much and and that and that is the feeling of grief but the the symptoms are that they do things that they have never done before and wouldn't normally do at at that time um yes they they do it in response to the passing of an individual that they've known so i i find that very helpful in Mm. you know in trying to parse all of this out and sometimes people say well do do animals have a concept of death and i say well do humans have a concept of death because i know people who believe that we have an eternal soul that uh, after death will live on forever either in heaven or hell and other people other people think that we have uh, a soul that has always existed that uh, is only in one karmic incarnation and, and now will go someplace else and come back in another karmic incarnation. And other people who think that there is no life before uh, or after life on earth and that when you're alive, you're alive, and when you're dead, you're dead, and you don't exist anymore, and that's it. So I, I don't think there's a concept of death among humans. I think we have a lot of concepts of death. And... Um, I, I, you know, so I think it's uh, it's helpful to be a little bit humble about it. It's not like we fully understand death or exactly agree on what death is or any of these kinds of things. And I, I think our dogs are uh, are, are uh, also wondering about it sometimes. Yeah, oh, that's beautifully put, Carl. And that's exactly my experience. That here we had three different dead dogs, and they all knew Peanut had passed away. And they all behaved in a slightly different way and um, very similar to humans who hear that somebody's passed away, depending on the relationship that you have with that person and depending on your own personality, you'll, you may behave very differently to another person, but we're all uh, aware of it in our own way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and, you know, short of, short of death, we humans experience grief in different ways. We, we may grieve somebody who has decided to walk out of our lives. Uh, we may uh, we may know that they intend to come back, but we miss them a lot if they're on a long trip or uh, or they have to go and move in with uh, an elderly parent for some period of time or something like that. You know, we may understand the situation and still miss them. And I, I've known I've known dogs who miss their their people when they go to work. I, I was around one dog quite a lot who when uh, when her uh, when her person, her caregiving person went to work every day, she would uh, she would just crawl up in a in a in a heap and uh, didn't want to do anything all day long un- until that person returned home. 
right now we have our three dogs and they're very happy and they they are they feel very much at home but um and i'm usually the one who does all the traveling but when my wife is away which is unusual and i'm home alone the dogs do not come up to the bedroom at night like they usually do usually they come up on the bedroom and they they sleep either under the bed or on their on their own beds on the floor but um when my wife is gone they they wait downstairs they're they're waiting oh. for her to come back and, yes yes um, and if she does not come back they they may come up to the bedroom at about five in the morning but they you know oh. they they know they know who's here who's gone and who they're who they're missing totally totally it's incredible what they will actually do for us and how long they'll hang out and wait and change their behavior to yeah, to do what they feel like we want them to do to try and connect to us. And right. My dogs, um, I find it, I'm, qu I'm quite pleased with the fact that I, I often say when your dogs are really relaxed, they will just switch off. You know, if you look at animals in the wild, a lot of the time they're, um, certainly the wolves and, and, and those bigger animals, they're, they're not, or the wolves and the dogs, you know, they're not always chasing their tails and chasing flies and digging holes and hyperactive and charging around barking like, some of the crazy stressed out dogs that we sometimes see, I often say, if you can calm your dogs right down, they actually will just chill and relax. And, and um, it's interesting. My, my dogs are actually, they love nothing more than to sit in the back of my ute. I have it in the shade and I'll put three dogs in there and they'll sit there for three or four hours at a time and just switch off. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and it's fascinating how when they switch off, they really do. They're happy to spend hours and hours just, relaxed like oh that. yes yes Th those are the hours where sometimes i look at them and i think boy i wish i was you yeah i often that's actually where i sometimes go are they effectively doing what we call like a silent meditation what what is i i, I often look at those dogs and go they've been lying there for three or four hours then i'll call them out we'll have a five or ten minute run around the garden or whatever then they'll go back and lie down again and they'll be there for another three or four hours. And I think, are there brain? I, I, I've no idea whether the tests have been done, but I presume something's going on in the brain. Is it? Are they dreaming? Are they meditating? Is it just a calm, flat line of peace? Or have you any those are, those thoughts are good, on that? One? Those are good questions. But they do dream. That those yes those patterns have been observed by uh, uh, you know in the exact same way that people have observed the brain waves and they. Okay. And the brain yeah. Patterns in humans that are dreaming. So if you if you're wondering if your dog is dreaming, the answer is yes. Your dog is dreaming when they're when they're flicking their wrists and, uh, and yeah. woofing, barking, yeah. woofing. Yeah, that's the most delightful noise. So that's been scientifically kind of oh, yes. tested or seen, yes. has it? Wow. Yeah, I've often wondered that. I, my big dog Jack, he actually does a huge um, howl in the middle of the night sometimes. Uh huh. Just a big. It's like a wolf. Uh huh. You know, and an absolute, oh, scares the daylight out of my wife and I. <laughs> so you think it's the um, fire sirens going off, but um, it's just Jack. And I sometimes picture where he is in his dream, yeah, you know. That's great. Yeah. I, we, we, yeah. I was watching one of our dogs one time, and he, he, he was, you know, doing that dreaming sort of behavior with the, the little paws flicking and, and the jowls going woof, woof. And he suddenly leaped to his feet barking crazily and he just suddenly looked around like what 
oh, I'm right here. So you know, I wonder, I wonder oh, if they, uh, yes. if they kind of recognize a difference that was just a dream, but but there yes. are human societies that do not recognize the difference between just a dream and reality. Yep. They, their concept is that those are two realities. And I, I wonder, yes. but the dog suddenly knew that he was not where he thought he was uh, when yes. he leapt to his feet barking wildly and he settled right it's, down again. But he was he was obviously very surprised and bewildered to find himself on the planet, uh, you know, on the surface of planet Earth after wherever else he, he had been. That's beautiful. <laughs> so, Carl, with all these um, different emotions that we're discussing, it brings me to the question of – I've got to try and pronounce this word right. I'm always a bit confused. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. <laughs> yeah. So I've always – I've always kind of um, been confused with that word because in my mind, um, you know, people always say, oh, don't say the dog's that happy because that's a human emotion. And I've always gone, uh, I've always struggled feeling that, well, the dog is happy. Should those emotions are not just our emotions. And, you know, I've read quite a bit of your work. And I, I, can you expand on your uh, thoughts around uh, yeah, I think, so, uh, you know, that word is a really destructive word because people who know nothing at all about animal behavior know that word. And it it really undermines our ability to simply look objectively at animals doing what they're doing and through observation in, interpret what, what they're doing and uh, what's motivating them to do it. So... The idea of, first of all, the definition of anthropomorphism is attributing human thoughts and behaviors to non-human animals or, or plants for that matter. And uh, can I just jump in? Could, you know what makes me, the question I ask immediately is when we say they're human emotions, the question is, are they, what's the word, purely or only our emotions? Like, is happiness just a human emotion? That's the question we need to ask, surely, straight away, is it? Well, yes, I, I think that's the um, that's sort of the crux of how to get out of this pit that yes. that word digs for us. Because um, we, it's like if the humans own all the emotions, then the and, and no other, if we come from a place of saying happiness is a human emotion and you can't give it to other animals, it's almost like we've grabbed all the emotions for ourselves. Well, it's not almost we, as if, it's it's exactly that. And Yeah, um, if you grab the ball, there's none left for the animals to have. So Yeah, well, you know, science is supposed to be about believing evidence. It's not supposed to be about rules, about what you can and cannot do or think or believe. That's that, yes. That to me, that's what religion is. Religion is about rules about what you are supposed to believe, and science is supposed to let you believe what the evidence shows. Yes. So, with, yep. you know, I I agree. You should not project human emotions onto other animals, and I have sometimes seen mistakes made by people doing that. Uh, for instance, um, we were once catching birds to to ring them or tag them. I'm not sure how you say it in New Zealand. That we we call it banding them, and and in, in the in the Brits call it yep. ringing them. So we were putting 
yep. putting um, rings on their legs, numbered rings. Because uh, yes, uh, yes. So we were catching them with a very fine net, and two birds were traveling together. One one hit the net, and the other one came back and was hovering, and uh, the, you know the one the one that was stuck in the net was trying to get out of the net. The other one was hovering around. And um, my father happened to be with me, and he said, "Look, that one's trying to help the other one." Now, now to me, he was projecting. If he was with a companion yes. that was stuck, he would try to help. And I was thinking, well, it's obviously wondering what just happened. I I don't know if it's trying to help. It's responding because something unusual and unexpected happened, but I don't really know if if it if it thinks it's mobbing a predator or if it thinks it's trying to help or if it's just trying to see what happened, I don't know. So I would say my father was projecting his thoughts and emotions and I was looking, trying to figure out what what that bird might be trying to do or might be thinking in the moment. At, at any rate, we put the band on, we let the other bird go and that was, that was all okay. But... Um, um, but, yeah, but, but I, if if you simply observe an animal and it does something and and you have these words that make sense of what it does to say that you can't apply those words to your observation is not scientific. So we don't we don't see a let's just say a dog. We're talking a lot about dogs. We don't see a dog that is sitting um where there's no threat, nothing has changed, uh nothing is going good or bad or wrong or different and suddenly it 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 puts its tail between its legs and it runs away we don't see it do that we see it run away when something very threatening happens so so to yes. say all right well the the dog is frightened so that makes sense because that's a fear response in a, in a situation where it perceives a threat it's the same thing about a dog that seems enraged when they're fighting or is uh barking because there is an intruder and is trying to defend the the home or or the the territory or the or the person for that matter um you know observing and then applying words that we have is uh is a scientific way of making sense of the world otherwise uh, you're not allowed to make sense of the world and that doesn't make any sense to me so um as, I, i'm I have to say, I was in, in, it was embarrassingly late in my life when a person who uh, trained many kinds of animals for a living, uh, he, he worked at a zoo and he had worked with many, many different kinds of animals and knew a lot about uh, working with them and training them in different, different uh, personalities of different kinds. He, he said to me, if your dog is happy, if, if your dog acts happy, it's a happy dog. And, you know, it had never been put to me that simply before because a lot of my professional training created such a a thicket for me that I had to dig my way through and out and around to simply observe. But it it really is quite that simple. If your dog seems happy, it's a happy dog. If your dog seems frightened, it's a frightened dog. If your dog seems relaxed, it's it's a relaxed dog. Yes. So... um, you know they probably yeah, I, they're probably I, I, not worried about applying to graduate school, but there are other things that they are worried about, or calm about, or or secure about, 
or or expressing love about um, what is what does love feel like to us? Love feels like the desire to be close to somebody. Do do the dogs ever show a desire to be close to us or to other dogs in our household? Y- yes, they do that constantly. We have these dogs, as I mentioned before, that when we go to bed at night, they come upstairs and they lie on the floor in our bedroom. We've never given them a treat in that room. There's nothing that we do in that room that is um, particularly noteworthy that we don't do in every other room of the house with them as far as, you know, petting them or or paying attention to them. But they're not up there to get food they're up there because they like being near us and um, yeah. and that's yeah. what love is and we we use the word love for many many different things i think uh, as for you know what is the human concept of love we say oh i, I love my country i love ice cream i i, I love uh, fancy shoes i love my mother i love my child we, we use the same word for all these different things. They're not all the same thing. Loving your child is not the same thing as loving ice cream. So uh, do we even know what we're talking about when we apply these words that refer to such, on the one hand, such frivolous things like loving ice cream, and on the other hand, the most profound thing in the human experience, like loving our child or loving our parent mm. or our spouse. So- for people that confused about that word to say, oh, you can't say that the dog loves is is um, is silly. It's it's kind of ridiculous uh, because obviously yeah. they do they do have their loves, and um, if if you're at all nice to them, their main inclination is to love you. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we've so overcomplicated the whole reading our animals um as a dog trainer i go around to some houses and some people is it so some people i i would say they anthropomorphize it and i think that's a good thing is that the word anthropomorph- Anthropo- uh, anthropomorphize anthropomorphize so they anthropomorphize and i think it's a good thing well i i, mean, I, I say to... it's the best first guess about what they're doing so it, you know in Brilliant. a way it's yep. like it's a guess. It's a hypothesis. You know, I, Great. I think the dog wants to play. Uh, you know, the, the dog is being a real pain in the neck right now. Yep. Jumping around, it keeps barking. I, I have work mm. to do. I want it to be calm. Well, uh, you, you look and you just stop for a second and say, oh, actually, actually, she's a little pent up and she just wants to she just yep. wants to play. OK, yep. so that's your that's your anthropomorphizing because uh that's the way it looks to you. And then if, if in fact you begin to engage and the dog really does want to play, well, you were right. The dog wants to play. Brilliant. So I, from now on, I'm going to feel like I can anthropomorphize and not feel like, um, yeah, that I, I just want to make sure when I anthropomorphize that, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm doing exactly that. I'm just saying, this is an emotion that I see that I observe. And I'm just saying, that's what I feel the dog is doing. Um, that feels yeah. good. I've always wanted uh, to check that, that with works, somebody who understood the me. word better. Works for me, yeah. Um, as I say, it's the best first guess. I, occasionally, I've I've had that kind of guess, and then I've and then I revised it because then what happened next um, was oh, yes. that's actually actually not what's that's actually not what seems to be going on. But it's 
it's a good first guess because many of these animals are in in their in their in their basic ways they're very very similar to us they have they have very yes. similar needs and they are um you know especially with dogs they they're literally part of our households we we have the same home cultures we have the same routines they know the cues yes uh you know if you never owned a car a little jingle of something on your desk wouldn't mean anything but to dogs that go out in the car a lot you reach for your car keys they they see you do that or they hear that and they know what the cues and and the routines are like this morning for instance um what we we often take the dogs out in the morning we not every day depending on how busy we are or what what needs to be done or what the weather is like but we often do so they're they're kind of alert to the possibility and this morning i noticed i was just looking at some email on my cell phone and then i put my phone in my pocket and that yeah. and that alerted all of them because that's that's yes. sometimes the yep. first cue now you know it wasn't that many yep. years ago we didn't have cell phones and that would not have been a cue because it didn't happen yes <laughs> but they they know yes. what the cues and the routines are isn't it incredible i i used to have a windows 95 uh, computer and um i noticed that if i ever if that sound, you know, the sound of the Windows yeah, 95 yeah. machine yeah. turning off, right. whatever it was, my dogs would jump up and start running around, you know, chasing that's their funny. tails. Yeah, that's excited. funny. Uh-huh. And I started to realize that noise to them had obviously meant, oh, he's shutting his computer. That noise yeah. often leads to right. a walk. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And hope springs eternal. Yes. But tell me, have you ever experienced... Um, situations where your dogs seem to be preempting what's going to happen and you cannot identify any um, movement or pattern or word or sound that indicates you're going to go for a walk or get some food or do something and and yet they seem to have um, picked up on it if you know what I mean I, have you ever I don't know if the word is ESP or you know, they I, seem to be using another sense I'm not sure I'm not sure I've noticed that with the dogs, but I definitely noticed that with a raccoon that we raised. And yeah. um, I don't know, you know, raccoons are native to North and Central America, so not everybody is necessarily familiar with what that is. But it's a it's a small carnivore, and yep. um, they have... We've seen them on the cartoons, yeah, yeah. I think, more than anything. Um, yeah. So anyway, we we had raised an orphan that had uh, had fallen out of its nest tree, emaciated, almost uh, almost starved. Uh, I I, yes. I believe we saw um, its mother in the road near our house, ha having been hit by a car. I think that was what the uh, problem was. And yes, um, yes, that raccoon, we we raised it in the house, and then when it got a little bigger. Uh, you know, it used to be outside a lot, sometimes in the house. It it often preferred to be in the house because it it felt very safe in the house. And and what it was mostly afraid of was uh, other raccoons. So uh. it would be very relaxed. It would often often be like a, a relaxed like a cat in the house. And then uh, occasionally it would be a little rambunctious, or or we would have to. Uh, you know, go outside or do something or leave, and we'd have to put the raccoon outside. And 
Yes. All, all I had to do was have the thought. Okay, time time for the raccoon to be outside, and you'd see her stiffen up, and her back would go up, and and I knew we were I knew we were in for a fight at that point, you know, and I'd have to like get the broom yes. and and, uh, and help her find the door. And I, I always said to my wife, I do not know what the cue is here. It, a little tiny inflection of body language or something, or the way that I simply glanced at her, but she was just so unbelievably sharp at picking up whatever it was. I don't know what it was. Uh, you know, was she reading my mind? I, I don't know. I would say I don't think so, but, um, but it just incredible sensitivity to my intention. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And having worked with about 3,000 people with their dogs, the number of people who've told me similar stories about dogs who knew uh-huh. stuff is just mind-boggling. And a lot of it is around that whole, you know, dogs that know when their owners are coming home uh-huh. sort of thing, dogs who know you're thinking of going for a walk, and the second you think it – yeah. Yeah. They're there. They yeah. respond, and you look. You look around and go, "Well, hang on." I, I, I mean, I've got so many examples, but one of them was with my dear dog Peanut, and um, I could go to the cupboard so many times. Um, I did. I, I was in the kitchen going to the food cupboard, creating some food or something. And one time, and Peanut had lay in a bed and hadn't moved for I don't know. She hadn't moved for an hour. And then I went to the food cupboard and I was looking around and I saw these old dog biscuits there and I just saw them and I looked at them and I thought, oh, I should probably give them to the dogs, just get rid of them. And and there was Peanut there. She was right there by my side yeah. straight away. And I thought, hang on. I didn't say anything. Yeah. Hang on. Yeah. I, I've been here 10 times in the last hour and she wasn't just wandering around the kitchen. She was literally at my leg going, yep, she's nudging me, you know. She was literally going, yes, give me them. And the number of times that's happened is just mind-boggling and the timing. Yeah. Well, clearly uh, their their sensitivity to things is tuned up very, very high. And I think that it, it, may, be, it may be because they, they don't have – words to talk with and constantly send those kinds of messages back and forth. So their, their tuning to the cues is just um, extraordinarily sensitive. Hi. Yes, 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 yes. Wow. There, 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 was, there was a story of by, um, uh, I think he was an elephant. Uh, he ran an elephant surgery. Anthony Lawrence, I think oh, was yes, his name. Oh, yes, I've heard that story, yes. Yeah, and he um, he went away, I think, somewhere for a while, and he was away for four or five months, and and they said that he um, he was picked up at the airport and brought back to the the area where the elephants were in a car, and he said that that morning that he was meant to return, all the elephants had um, gathered at the gate of the huge sanctuary, and um, they never ever gathered at that point, but this one day that he was returning home, um, they were there. And they just said it was just unbelievable coincidence, or somehow the elephants knew he was coming home. Yeah, I, I've heard uh, I've heard other stories like that about elephants, and they they are yeah. really extraordinary. Yeah, and 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 you know, we went to the UK for five weeks, and we asked somebody to feed our dear cat, 
And they were very, very worried because they said they popped over. They only lived next door. They said they popped over three, four times or two, three times a day, and they never saw the cat. Uh-huh. But believe it or not, when we drove down the road, the cat was sat right on the end of the driveway, just uh, sat there like he'd been there yeah. forever. Uh-huh. And you think, well, maybe he hid the car, but the way he was sat there, it was like he already had been there waiting for um, for a long, it's long so time. so interesting. Yeah. I think there's a lot going well, on that we don't understand. That's how I feel. And, um, yeah, we've touched on a lot of things, uh, Carl, and um feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours about so many other things. But um must bring this to a close. In terms of um, yourself, I believe you've got a new book coming out. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What's, uh, what's Yeah, the new, the new book? book is called Becoming Wild. It's about how animal cultures, cultures in non-humans, create a family, create much of the living beauty in the world that we see, and also um, how they learn how to create peace in stressful social situations, because living in social groups inevitably produces stresses, and they need to have some skills to create peace and to reconcile and to get on with themselves. So it's, it's, about, yeah. it's about the fact that many animals must learn how to become who they are supposed to be. They don't, they don't all get yes. everything instinctively. And it's a very overlooked and, and really important aspect of many wild lives, this, uh, this need to learn how to do their life and the answers to the questions, how do we live here? Wow. Sounds awesome. Sounds a little bit how I'm kind of stumbling through my life, Carl, <laughs> trying to figure out how, how, to become, how to become the best man yes, I can be. I, I yeah. think um, the, the book showed me many, many parallels between how animals come to understand their life and how humans come to understand our life. And... Um, um. I, I, I found it to be a, a really extraordinary journey, and it, 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 it gets very deep into uh, the lives and experiences of a number of non-humans. Wow. There are, th- there are three focal species that I spent um, time with in the wild, and then there are many who come in and make cameos. The, the three focal species are sperm whales yep. who, who have a, a social organization almost identical to elephants. Yes. And and then macaws, the big parrots yep. called macaws, and then chimpanzees, which are, if you're going to talk about non-human culture, uh, it's their, chimpanzees are sort of unavoidable in that context, mm. but very, very instructive. So that's what it's about. And then uh, everything from sparrows to bears to uh, dolphins um, Brilliant. make their appearances in the book. Fascinating. And you've got so many other books. Where's the best place if people are uh, thinking, I want to know more, I want to buy some books, I want to get hold of these books. Where's the best place you direct people? If you want to see something about all the books, you can go to my personal website, which is carlsafina.org. So it's C-A-R-L. And the last name is S-A-F-I-N-A dot O-R-G. But uh, the books are available through anybody who buys and sells books, and you can you know you can get them online, you can get them in bookstores, um, you can get them wherever 
you can get books. So they're widely available. Brilliant. So carlsafina.org, go there, check it out. Carl, it's been um, eye-opening. Wonderful to talk to you. And uh, I'm just so appreciative for all the work that you do out there because it's always, you know, it's always good to have somebody who's um, more scientific than my sort of approach of just observing and feeling and experiencing stuff to have somebody who's actually gathering the gathering the data and doing the hard yards and spending the time and the hours and then reporting back well i think it takes you know it takes both um i mean the people who the people who were scientific in a way that did not allow themselves to be um at all intuitive about it or or you know just use their their basic logic about what it what it appears to be to them, I think they, uh, I think they robbed themselves of some insights. Yes. So I think it takes both approaches. Yeah, as you know, insight is good, and then actually checking it out by testing it and getting getting the data and doing some experiments uh, is also good. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, Carl. Well, there you go, guys. I'm sure you've absolutely loved that. Fascinating stuff. Check out the website. I'll put all the links on the blog page. Um, on my site relating to this podcast. But uh, once again, thank you, Carl. Appreciate it so much. It's been great having you here. Oh, well, I appreciate it enormously, and I'm honored to be with you. Yeah, yeah. No, it's beautiful. And, um, when it, you know, when, when it goes live, uh, if you could email us the link, and we'll get that out and around quite a bit. Will do. We'll do that, Carl. All righty, guys. Take care. That's, uh, that's a wrap. That's the end of this episode. It's the Doggy Den Podcast Show. Have a great day. And as always, love your dog. Bye. You've been listening to another episode of the Doggy Den Podcast Show, bringing you one step closer to creating harmony with your dog.